Hello and welcome to the Rhythm Changes Podcast. I'm your host, Will Chernoff, and this episode is sponsored by 12th Street Sound, who have a special offer for you, the listeners of this show, an exclusive promo for the recording studio in New Westminster, where you can get up to 20% off your next recording project. It's perfect for bands on a budget or people who are going into the studio for the first time. You can record as much as an EP that'll be ready for you to release maybe even a week or two after you record it. That's what happens when you go into a studio, you tell your story, you play your heart out, and you work with an experienced professional who will help you get the job done. If you have something else that doesn't quite fit that mold of making a little EP, you can mention the Rhythm Changes podcast and get access to a special rate from Anthony Centerini at 12th Street Sound. You can learn more at 12thstreet.ca slash RCP to access the special offer and get up to 20% off your next recording project here as we head into fall 2022. Thank you to 12th Street for sponsoring the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Railtown Mastering. That's Andrew Downton, mastering engineer here in Vancouver. I've been talking the last couple of weeks about how I've been getting a new album done here myself. It's my second album and Andrew's mastered it. He has sent it back to me. So first I mentioned that I was looking forward to sending it to him around when I was heading out on vacation. He got those masters turned around really quickly like he always does. He sent them back to me and I've had some time to review them. And as always... I love what he's done. He's taken the mixes that Anthony at 12th Street and I have worked on and made them sound even better, just like he did when he mastered my first album and just like he did when he mastered my former band's second album. He has a lot of great clients. You can learn more about all the people he works with at railtownmastering.com. I recommend you go with him to get your music mastered locally this year because that's what I've done. And you can make that happen by emailing him at andrew at railtownmastering.com. That's andrew at railtownmastering.com or visit railtownmastering.com to get your music mastered this year. That's what I want. I don't want to think that I'm, oh, I just hired these guys. I want to be included. I want to be one of the musicians. I don't want to be considered the singer who's just joined the band. Making a trip back home. Ah, yes, a fascinating subject in a music scene. Sometimes people go away to further their career or their studies and then come home and it's big news when they perform gigs. What are they going to play? What have they learned out there? Today, I'm sharing a guest with you who's doing just that on a mini tour of BC, including a stop at Frankie's. That's up next. You're listening to the only weekly interview podcast about jazz and creative music in Canada. Our guest today is a jazz vocalist who is back for a mini tour of BC, having lived in the UK for the past decade. That includes a stop at the First Unitarian Fellowship of Nanaimo on Friday, August 26th, where she is joined by Patrick Corton on piano, Drake Shoemaker on bass, Adam Robertson on drums, and special guest Greg Bush, that's her father, on trumpet, as well as here in Vancouver at Frankie's Jazz Club on Sunday, August 28th with again Patrick Corson on piano, and this time Rennie Worst on bass, Bernie Rye on drums, and also a special guest appearance from her dad, Greg Bush, on trumpet. You can get her latest album, Dream Away, on Bandcamp, and you can find her on the web at laurenbushjazz.com. So please welcome to the Rhythm Changes podcast, Lauren Bush. Thank you so much for having me, Will. <laughs> oh, it's great to catch up with you at this particular time. Now, you just played a gig at Herman's as part of this BC mini tour. So how was that? Oh, yeah, it was really cool. You know, it was it was um, uh, sort of a blast from the past, because I think when I before I moved to the UK, 
that was probably the last like big gig I did for myself. I, I hired a big band um, and we, we went down to Herman's and did this big band gig there. Um, so setting foot back on the stage after 10 years or so was really nice. Um, and like really pleasingly, the Herman's has really stepped up their game. Um, I was really impressed with um, just the, I think it's a like an, an arts association that are running it now and um, called Arts on View. And they just seem to be really doing a, a great job of running it as a jazz club. Um, they've expanded it into Herman's Upstairs as well, which I was like, you know, that was a great gig we just did. But next time I'm like, goals next year, we're going to be, we're going to be upstairs at Herman's, I think. Um, but everyone was just really lovely. And the setup was nice. And I even made a comment of saying that the atmosphere in the club reminded me a lot of Ronnie Scott's with the sort of famous jazz musician photos on the wall and the red, red accents and stuff like that. So it was a little, a little touch of what I now call home. <laughs> yeah, I remember being so impressed with Herman's the first time I went there. One of my childhood friends enrolled at UVic in around 2011, and I was just kind of old enough at that time to go over there and hang out with him a little bit and crash at his place that he was renting with his other university friends. And I got to go to Herman's a couple times. That was the first time I'd experienced it around then. And I was I was pretty impressed because at the time, right, you know, you had the seller here as the flagship jazz club seller was very small. Right. And then here's Herman's and it's like a bigger place than that. And it, it felt like it was the same kind of level, but it was a different feeling. And it was so cool that Victoria could have a big jazz club like that and now there's this upstairs thing that i've been hearing about you mentioned too i haven't seen that yet so i haven't fully experienced the attraction of of that you know i know i'm i was hoping that we'd get to go to something um there but there was there, i think the summer holidays are a weird time to be booking gigs because everyone's on holiday so um there wasn't a whole lot being programmed upstairs um but uh, i think it's still quite new you know but i'm i'm not sure if you're aware of lila bialy i'm sure everyone yeah. in canada is pretty aware of her but she just did a gig there and she's so good at social media so she posted she was posting all these um pictures and little videos and stuff of the venue and i was just really impressed i'm i'm just it's so nice to know that Vic, oh, well that's a small place like Vancouver Island and Victoria is not that small I guess but small enough that they support something like that um and that they're lucky enough to have something like that and even see it grow a little bit is really cool yeah I enjoyed listening before having you on here to an episode of the Journeys in Jazz podcast by Fliskorst, who plays tenor sax on your album track Blackfriar and sounds like has been one of your key collaborators on the London jazz scene ever since you moved there. You play in her big bands and such. Yeah. One of the things that you said about uh, Nanaimo while you were on that show is that it has a healthy jazz community that uh, I think of as including a lot of high school programs that are really excellent. And so there are young jazz musicians now who come up through Nanaimo and they end up going to all the universities in North America to further their careers. And then you continue to have uh, new talent coming out of the Mid-Island area, just like Diana Krall originally, which kind of feels like it started the big wave. And But now people on all instruments, right, and playing all styles of jazz are coming out of Nanaimo, right? Definitely. Yeah, it's it's really amazing that this place that's um, like very very far removed from the rest of the country even um, has such a maybe you could say it's a bit insular because um, when you leave Nanaimo, there's less of that going on. But that it seems like because they've got the university here, it used to be called Malaspina College, and it changed over to Vancouver Island University about 15 years ago, I think, maybe less. 
but they had like a really good program of musicians that were working musicians, but also like qualified teachers that were just really getting young people excited about jazz. Um, and then also just churning out then teachers. So, you know, they go through the program and then they might not want to be freelance jazz musicians. So they go into the teaching industry and, and start like training the, the, the youth in this um, capacity. So you'd end up with all of these really talented um, and also just really enthusiastic, like young players that would then, yeah, some of them end up in Toronto and Montreal. Um, but then a lot of them, like a couple of my good friends, we were having a chat the other day about um, this, this guy called Ron Gaucher, who was like a totally killer, I think tenor player. Um, and he teaches in Port Alberni now. So he runs the high school band there. So he, be, you know, because he wanted to settle down here with his family and everything, he might not have taken his talent and gone places with it in that sense. But he's now he's molding young minds and he's turning out, uh, I think, Drake Shoemaker, who's the bass player that played with us in, in Victoria last to, uh, last Thursday, went through the Port Alberni music scene or uh, music program so Ron was his teacher um which that really like that really made me smile because he first of all he did Drake did an amazing job playing those charts that I brought with me um he's like 21 years old and he's basically we had one rehearsal but he's basically sight reading this music being sort of thrown in the deep end on the gig to just um you know uh fly by the seat of his pants as such. He's also helping Phil Dwyer on his summer jazz camps. He said he's the TA, which um, I think essentially means he's like a gopher, but he's on scene all the time listening to guys like Steve Wallace and Phil Dwyer talk to him nice. about jazz for two, three weeks nice. all summer long. So it's really cool. It's, yeah, I think Nanaimo, yes, Diana Krall came from here and She's probably like their claim to fame. The square downtown is called uh, Diana Curl Square. But there's so much more than that going on here. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, you're melding young minds yourself because you also work as a teacher, right? And you've been doing that in the UK as well. Did you also teach in Canada? Or is that something that you started doing in addition to your music work when you moved to the UK? Uh, it was something that when I, I, I graduated university with this like bizarre degree, that um, I thought I wanted to be an interior designer. And then I just like had a sort of mini breakdown and was like, I don't want to do this. I want to be a musician. And my family were like, are you sure? <laughs> it's oh, not wow. exactly. It's not exactly like, well, I, I'd seen my dad do it. It was freelance. And my mom is a musician as well. So I knew what it was like. And they were like, if you're going to, if you want to have a go at music, that's fine. We'll totally support you. But just have something up your sleeve as like a backup plan or, you know, a way to make an income because being a musician, you know, is what it's like the 50th year anniversary of the hundred dollar gig. Right. So like, you know, <laughs> inflation's going up, but the price for a gig is still a hundred bucks. So, you know, just have something that's going to be able to help you pay your rent and stuff. So that's why I got my teaching degree and I taught, um, I think it was not even a year. I got, I finished my degree and then I got a job um, as like a maternity cover teach music teacher um, here in Nanaimo. And then um, my partner, um, who is Canadian as well, he got into grad school in London um, at the Central School of Speech and Drama. 
And he said, I'm going. We'd been dating for about five years or so. And I said, okay, let's go. (laughs) So it was like, it was a very um, lucky thing to have my teaching degree because when I got to London, because we're com- uh, Canada's a Commonwealth country, uh, it's super easy to go as a Canadian um, to the UK it, on a visa. And so having my teaching degree gave me a reason to get a visa to go over there. So I was supply teaching uh, anything and anywhere they'd have me across London. Uh, some days I'd be traveling an hour to get to some supply, supply school. Um, but it meant that I had like a sec- like security while I was there to then I was at, at jam sessions and trying to wrangle gigs and meet people and rehearse and just, you know, make connections and network and all that. But I was really grateful to have that um, up my sleeve, like I said. And then over as time has passed, it's turned into like, um, so I taught every, I taught year five, which is like grade four, I think in this country, everything, maths and science and everything for seven years. And then right before everything locked down in 2020, I went for a job interview to teach music in a little private school, um, not far from where I live in London. And I got the job. So right when everything was falling apart, I was sort of quietly sitting going, I've got two jobs right now, (laughs) which is really lucky. Um, And it's turned out, yeah, to teach, I teach primary school. So the kids nursery, which they're three up until year six. So they're 11 when they leave. And I'm just the music teacher. So I teach classroom music, lots of clapping and singing and, you know, percussion instruments and stuff like that. And then I also help them organize all the musicals. So we did Alice, Alice in Wonderland, the musical and Hansel and Gretel, the musical and amongst the, and it's, it's turned out so well for me that I get to, you know, have the, the job security of having a permanent position, but that I also get to spend every day teaching music. So it's like, I just, you know, sing and clap and dance and it's great. I love it. It's really, um, it's a perfect setup for me. That's so cool to hear. That's awesome because you can think about the day job when you're a creative professional and there's certain feelings that you'll have about doing that. But you know, this is a great point that within your day job career, as the years go by, uh, you can craft it to be more of what you're looking for. Like you might have to start out doing whatever, like driving over an hour or two supply or TOC gigs. And then eventually you can end up parlaying that into teaching music as part of the day job too. So even within the day job career, there's like this whole journey and this whole spectrum to like find a way for it to best reflect you and to fit into your creative life you know yeah I think yeah exactly when you're young it's kind of hard you know as much as I wanted to be a freelance musician I like I know myself well enough that I didn't really I was never interested in struggling through it um you know living in a in a bed sit or a house share or something like that where I didn't have enough money to like go to a gig or check out the West End Theater or something like that because I was struggling to make to find my art was never really um, something that I I would would have wanted to do. So even though there were times that I'd say like, I hate doing this thing that like takes up so much of my time through the day, it you know, over enough years, I've managed to find a way. I'll tell you a little um, tidbit that I was in the Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Competition about uh, 2016, I was picked as a top five finalist, which is maybe a bit of a clang there, but it's, it was really fun to be picked. 
um, to go and do this. And so I flew to, to New Jersey to take part. And the, one of the other girls that was also chosen, women I should say, um, was Sinna Eeg, who is a Danish jazz singer. Um, S-I-N-N-E, Sinna Eeg, E-double-E-G. Um, and she was a lot older than me. Um, but the rule, I guess, to enter the competition is just that you're not signed. So she just happened to not be signed. So she'd entered and I knew who she was. And she's a really incredible, incredible vocalist. Um, and we were sitting at the bar after one night, like after a rehearsal for it or something. And I was telling her my sort of woe story of like, oh, you know, I try, I moved to London. I'm trying to make it as a singer. Um, but I, you know, I've got this day job. I teach primary school and it takes up so much time, all this marking and marking and planning and la 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 and I just I you know I wish I had more time to dedicate to my singing and in her sort of very like blunt Scandinavian way she just said well if you wanted to you'd do it <laughs> and I was like huh yeah I guess you're right <laughs> like if I if it was something that was really important to me to be dedicating that much time to it I'd quit the teaching job and find a way to do it and she she, as, as much as like she wasn't trying to sort of like rub my nose in it or anything, it did really make me sort of switch the way I viewed my choices because that's what they were. They're choices. I chose to teach primary school to have a nicer sort of calmer, cushier lifestyle than to then. So it made me reevaluate the way I was doing things. And I think it was that kind of comment that made me think, okay, if I'm not happy doing this particular teaching job, what do I need to do to find a way to make this something that is manageable and what I want? And it took me a couple years, 2016. It took me about four years to figure it out. But I'd say right now I'm pretty close to doing the things that I want to be doing. So I always think about that comment and go like, mm, if you wanted to, you'd really do it. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I don't have a snap judgment on that story that would really make sense, but it is an interesting anecdote. I think there's another side to it too, where you could deploy that same phrase and say that you are doing it and the way that you chose to do it because you wanted to is you had to lock in the cost of living and the resources that you needed so that you could pursue your own career on your own terms, right? Yeah. So in a sense, you are doing it because you wanted to. Yeah. It's just you could spin that so many different ways. Yeah, exactly. But then there's something to be said about the power of positivity. You know, if you put a positive spin on what your situation is, you're less likely to hate it. So yeah, there's, I think, yeah. lots of different ways you can spin that to sort of remind yourself that it's not all bad. And the, whatever path you take to get where you're going, you get there eventually. Yeah. Can I ask you about my favorite moments on Dream Away on the album? Oh, uh, yeah, please. So one of my favorites is your scat solo on If This Isn't Love. Okay. Well, yeah. If This Isn't Love was a song, I think I heard Cecile McLaurin Salvant do a recording of it. I'm not sure if it's on one of her albums or if I just saw. I love the way she manipulates her voice. And, so, and I liked the sort of cheekiness of the song. And it's a lesser known tune. So that was why I wanted to record it. Um, the scat solo on that particular one was a real challenge for me. I spent a lot of time sort of make, hitting those um, crunchier changes and stuff like that. Um, but I, I like listening back to it a lot because I think, I, think, I think about that challenge um, when I listen back to it and go like, ah, oh, yeah, finally, like you got there. It, no matter, it, took, it took quite a few rounds, but I got there in the end. 
Um, and I probably, I don't know if I could sing it independently, but I could definitely sing along with it if it was on. <laughs> I listened back to it so much. Yeah, so like, just to be clear, like on the album, you sang that with the band recording live, right? Like that's, that's not an overdub or anything. Uh, it is an overdub. I think I sang, oh, gotcha. okay, um, yeah. I sang guide vocals with the band, but then we went back and did my scats and stuff like that separate. So it wasn't live with the band. Oh, but that's cool though, because you got the amount of isolation in the studio that like you were able to do that, right? Because yeah. sometimes depending on how you record it, like you just can't do it. Like there's so much bleed, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, um, it was a really good setup. The, the lucky thing with, um, Dream Away is that the arranger and the pianist on the album, Liam Dunnicky, is a really, really good friend of mine, and he's he's written all the arrangements. Um, but his one of his best friends is a recording engineer at Air Studios, which is a massive studio in London where they record um, an awful lot of film music um, and a lot of like classical, big sort of orchestral music and stuff like that. And he's probably one of the best engineers in the in the city. Um, we didn't record at Air, but I borrowed John. He's called John Prestige from Air. I had to like sort of pay Air to have him for three, four days. Um, and just his, the way he engineered the recording is just, I really, really value his expertise because, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do those things if it wasn't for him going like, all right, yeah, you are, you're in there. <laughs> you guys do this. Yeah, well, we, so we recorded... I think there's one or two things on the album. I'd have to really dig back and figure out what, but there are a few things that are from my guide vocals that we kept because it was like, oh, well, that no, that sounds great. You don't need to do that again. Um, but I think most of the scats were, re were, were recorded after the fact with me in a, in a vocal booth um, listening to the band in my ears. <laughs> Yeah, I would have no idea what they are because it's mixed so well, right? Like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to tell what I know, the guide vocals awesome. are or anything. Yeah. You think, like, at the beginning, I probably would have been like, oh, you know, what difference does it make? Like, they're, they're all doing the same job. But when, especially when I listen to the uh, my first album, All My Treasures, and then you put Dream Away on directly after, you can really tell the improvement that it makes. <laughs> it's really valuable. Yeah. This is going to be super abstract and it's a funny thing to describe on an audio podcast. But I think my favorite thing about your style and your arrangement style and the way that Dream Away was produced and the way it sounds is sometimes when I listen to like a vocal jazz quartet performance on record or something like that, especially where there's scat soloing featured and where the arrangements are a little more complex, a little more to them than singing in the head and having a half of the form instrumental solo and then taking it out but if there's if there's more vocal improvisation going on sometimes i when i'm not digging it as much what it almost sounds like to me is it's it sounds like the sound is arranged in like a triangular way where like the vocalist is like right up at the front and then the band is kind of like fanning out from behind the, right. the vocals yeah but on your albums it sounds like you are like deep in the middle of your band. Like I have no proof of why this is the case, but it just feels to me like you are like fully integrated in this kind of like big blob circular band arrangement and that you're you're so much in the action with the band sonically and that the arrangement goes on around you and reflects you. I have no idea why, but that's what I <laughs> That's really cool because I think that was a, a, something I've talked about a lot, specifically with Liam. I don't know if we ever had that conversation directly with John, but um, like when I first started joining, you know, singing and wanting to have my own quartet and, and wanting to play music with other musicians, um, my dad was really sort of... Um, 
I guess, impactful to me in the sense that he said, like, you know, musicians often sort of scoff at singers because they come in and they want to be the diva. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know their key. They don't know how to count off a song. So he was really instrumental in making sure that I knew all that stuff because he knew what it was like to have a singer join the bandstand and be like, oh, God, another singer who doesn't know what she's doing. So he said, like, you want to be accepted by the people on the stage. You need to come in and know your stuff. So it was very much like I was taught to sort of confidently and maybe, I don't know if he ever thought about it from me being a woman in that perspective, but I thought about it that in that way um, when I was quite young, being like most of the time I'm walking onto a stage, maybe 18, 19 years old, a stage full of men who are older than me and I don't want to be taken in this sort of like um, you know, like I'm a baby who needs to be looked after sort of way. I want to be included. Um, so I was taught those things and that confidence from quite a young age, I would say. Um, but then, so that became sort of like part of my ethos, I think, is that I, I want to be one of the musicians. I don't want to be considered the singer who's just joined the band. So then when it comes time to make writing arrangements and playing with my band it's I want it to feel like an integrated experience so that's really nice that you sort of have taken that from it because that's what I want I don't want to think that I'm oh I just hired these guys to sort of back me up I want it to be like we work together to do it it's hard because I don't read music I just do it by ear so sometimes really yeah I can't I can read it I just choose not to I'm very very slow at it and I don't know like when you talk about jazz harmony and stuff like that I don't really know I could sing a really crunchy note on a chord and somebody would say well what note is that in a chord I'd be like I don't know (laughs) sounds hip (laughs) oh that's awesome no I have no uh shade to throw at you for that I actually think that's super impressive that you do it on taste right like I find it really impressive (laughs) yeah I think um I think doing the opposite is a lot less like heartfelt and nice to listen to when you hear people who have sort of just just learned how to read it on paper and you kind of think well there's no heart and soul in this because you haven't got that that sort of like internalized yeah like you're listening and you're reacting to the music so I'm grateful that that's the side of the coin I have but then it can be to my detriment sometimes that I don't know that's my kryptonite when I feel like I'm on a bandstand. If if a musician asks me something about the music and they say, "Oh, do you want it like this, or do you what? What's this chord change supposed to be?" And I'm like, "I don't know. I can't help you." So I can. I'm trying to get more confident at like relying on the fact that I do know, and sometimes to an extent I can do it. I just have to like take a deep breath and go like, "You do know, like." see see how far into this you can get to help these people and that's part of you know it's part of sharing the bandstand and being especially if this music is supposed to be with my name on the title I should know these things Liam's always on my on my case about that too he's probably the biggest advocate of me knowing and he's we've had several a a late night over beer session of like sit down and educate Lauren on (laughs) on harmony um and it does it helps me i've learned a lot from that and and you know him talking to me about structures and and how the, you know he'll, he'll give me a lead sheet and say like just go home and look at these chord changes look how look at the baseline sing it through you know i'm i'm improving at it and obviously the more i do it the the better i get at it but i just i really love 
the fact that my ears guide me. And sometimes I think, well, why do I need to know? Who cares? <laughs> but I should know. Yeah. They're also, I love that. There are like little funny moments that are peppered throughout the album and like they sound cool. They're not like campy, overly campy funny moments. They're just like cool, fun things. Like the, the, boogie woogie solo break on keep it to yourself it's like what where did that come from <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think sometimes it seems like we're just trying to chuck all the all the different like you know chuck it all in there to just get it all out but um it just creates uh well for me it makes it fun who doesn't love a bit of boogie woogie <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know this will date this episode so much um but have you watched top gun maverick yeah, I have. Okay, so I, I was actually in Nanaimo like two weeks ago because I was on a family vacation for the first two weeks of August and we watched a Top Gun movie while we were there. So as I was listening, and I was listening to your album, like getting prepped for coming back, like the week I came back. And so I could only think of like the Top Gun Great Balls of Fire thing, like both the, the contemporary version and the original version. Like when that Boogie Woogie break came on, I just flashed right to that. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Pretty solid movie, to be honest. Exceeded yeah. my expectations. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, enjoy it. And that is not really my thing. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it, too. Um, another musical moment that isn't in that bucket of things, but I just really enjoyed, like your, your scat solo on If This Isn't Love, is uh, in a mellow tone. You've got this arrangement of it in the key of C, which is pretty cool. There must be other vocalists who do it in that key, but... Uh, not in like the regular kind of book key yeah. of A flat or whatever, starting it with you in the bass. It sounds really great. Uh, I can't exactly nail down a description of this, but when you listen to the album Dream Away, um, you should check this out. The way that you come out of your solo and you go into the trading is really awesome. I love that. That was one of my highlights too. Uh, I don't know if I remember it. Yeah, I don't I don't remember exactly the licks that you sang or whatever, but you were just like really on it. Like, like you were so kind of kind of in the moment with the band and the energy was really nice there that was one of my because it goes straight from the vocal solo into you trading with the drums right so i keep going for another four bars yeah i'll have to yeah i think um in a mellow tone was one of the ones that i, I didn't do very many takes of the of the scatting because i was just really comfortable it's just i think that sort of thing um comes very naturally to me i could scat on those sort of bluesy changes all day every day um, so it's very comfortable and, you know, it was one of those things that if you do it too much, then all of a sudden it's sort of overthought and loses all of its, all of its, um, style and, and fun. Um, but yeah, I really like scatting over that tune. That was one that I just wanted to record cause I knew it would just, it's a little bit lesser known, but I knew it would just feel right. It would feel fun and feel good to play with them. Yeah. You're really influenced by like the famous vocal jazz groups like Lambert Hendrix and Ross and Manhattan Transfer and stuff, right? Yeah, a decent amount. I listened to Manhatt Manhattan Transfer growing up a lot. My mom was super into them. So she had a couple records that we would put on. Um, the one, I don't know what it's called. It might be called Birdland, but the one with Birdland on it and like Cuckoo You and Trickle Trickle and, and all that was really, it's just, it just takes me back to being like eight. But Lambert Hendrix and Ross, I listened to a lot when I was sort of getting into singing with my own little quartet and stuff. And I just was blown away with the way John Hendricks mostly, I think it was mostly him that did the writing, um, the way he could write something that was, it fit the music, but it was also just so, it was so fun. He just, everything is so cheeky and clever um, 
And I just, I really admire that. And that's, the, again, those are the things that I want to be able to convey when I sing. So, so yeah, I listened to their records a lot. And I got to meet John Hendricks at Ronnie Scott's in 2013 or 14. He was like 91, I think. And I got to sit on his lap. Whoa. So that was like only a year or two after you moved. So what was that like? It was awesome. We went to see, it was John, I think it was John Hendricks, or maybe they called it Lambert Hendricks and Ross, but the obviously Annie Ross wasn't, wasn't um, touring anymore. So his daughter, Aria Hendricks, she was one of the people in the band. And then they had another guy who would have been Dave Lambert, whose name I can't remember. I want to say it was Kevin, but I don't think that's right. So we went and saw them and John Hendricks was kind of like um, touted out, like they'd do a couple numbers without him and then they'd sort of like get him from the back room and he'd come on and do a couple songs and then they'd sort of put him back because he was just ancient. Um, but he came out and I, rem- I remember like exa- sitting where, exactly where I was sitting um, and then I just cried, like just like tears streaming down my face of happiness, watching and listening to him play. Just out of, I think mostly out of just shock of being like, oh my God, this guy is like a legend and he's just right there and I can hear what he's doing and it still sounds like what I know it's supposed to sound like. So and then at the end, I think my mom's quite uh, good at put, you know, pushing, pushing me out there as mothers usually are. And she found Aria by the exit and said, oh, my daughter's just absolutely always love John Hendrix's music. And she's like, oh, do you want to meet him? <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would absolutely love that. So we went back and he was sitting down and he just, oh, I was just patted his lap. And I was like, oh God, like in any other situation, this would be so inappropriate, but I don't care. <laughs> so sat right down. Yeah, he was just lovely, really, really nice guy. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. And then you went to Jazz Ahead this year. You've probably been a couple times in past years because you're affiliated with this jazzfield.com community run by Matt Fripp that I've also enjoyed being a part of for yeah. a couple of years now. Um, what have you learned from either this year at Jazz Ahead where there was kind of a big Canadian presence? You probably got to do a bunch of stuff or just in general, what have you gotten out of going there? Um, okay. So Jazz Ahead is when you go the first year, it's super overwhelming. So I think this was my fourth time I wanted to go because Canada was the feature country and it sort of made sense to start like make, and I made a lot of networking connections. I don't know yet if any, anything has led to anything bigger, but I definitely, like I have probably at least a handful of names, if not more of people that I shook hands with or traded a business card with that are based in Canada that I didn't know before, which I think will will be really helpful in the future. And I can mention that a bit more in, the, uh, in a minute. Um, but when I went the first year, um, I didn't go with any expectations. I think I had maybe like five or six CDs and like a big handful of business cards with me. Um, and I made sure I dressed really professionally. Like I wanted to make sure that I looked like Lauren Bush, the singer persona, because I didn't ever want people to go like, oh, well, who's that on the cover? <laughs> who's she? <laughs> and then you can't possibly be that. I don't know. And maybe that's unnecessary to say, but I think whatever image you're trying to encapsulate, then that sh- needs to be your image. Like at, from a networking business perspective, that should be the image that you're um, putting out there in those situations. Um, but yeah, so, and then I just sort of wandered around making friends. Like you just walk up to a stall, stand in the conference center and you just, um, 
you can read the stuff that they've got available. You can chat with the people who are, are at the stand at the time and just um, share information. Uh, what I learned probably quite early on, not just at Jazz Ahead, but in general, being a North American, Canadian in my, in my case, but definitely Americans have this um, tendency, I would say even maybe more so than Canadians, which is what can you give me? What can, what can I get from you? Um, what, what I want and what you have to offer me is my goal. Um, and very quickly I realized that that wouldn't work in Europe and definitely is not really the best way to go about getting things. So I turned, I changed my attitude to more of a, what can I offer you or just nice to meet you? What's up? Tell me about your music and having that conversation and, you know, hopefully getting into a place of like mutual interest, like finding something that you can share and talk about is way more likely that they're going to remember you. Um, and then maybe think of you in a situation where they'd say, Oh, you know, maybe, Oh, so like, I don't, this is completely hypothetical, but Oh, Gregory Porter's coming to London and he needs someone to open for him. I, Oh, I met this really cool singer at jazz ahead. Maybe you could get in touch with her. That would be wicked. But if I sort of like forced myself on somebody, oh, I'm a singer. I live in London. This is what I do. Like, oh, what do you do? Oh, you're a booking agent. Well, here's all my information. Um, please listen to it. And like following up with emails and sort of like bombarding people with information is probably the best way to d get them to lose your number. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just really like, it's a place to meet people. You do still follow up on the connections that you make, but in a way less intense way I guess and I, I have I've met a lot of the I've, it's silly but I, I go to Jazz Ahead which is in Germany and I make connections with a lot of the London people and then when I get back to London I follow up on those connections that I made in Germany so annoying that I have to go all the way to Germany to make those contacts <laughs> but it helps you know because we're all in the same place doing the same thing at the same time we are. And that's why, you know, I'm here in New Westminster and I'm talking about gigs that you're going to do close to where I live. And you've lived in all these different places and you're back at your home base in Nanaimo right now, hanging out in the middle of your mini tour. And you're going to you're going to catch a ferry over here. You got one more gig on the island and then you're going to come play at Frankie's on Sunday. So I'm uh, wishing you all the best with that and i really enjoyed our chat so thanks Thank for taking you. the time to talk with oh, me today. i'm so grateful to be here thanks so much for doing this appreciate you tuning in to this week's episode of the rhythm changes podcast if you enjoyed it become a member for free today at rhythmchanges.ca in doing so you'll get the free weekly article like this week's article available now which is a review of an album by robert dyack called small bridges a jazz album that fuses in some post-rock you'll get future editions of the free weekly article by email on tuesday mornings you can sign up for that become a member for free today at rhythmchanges.ca <laughs> <laughs>